When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. 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 We're Distractions Media. Over the past three years, we've raised money for charity during our 24-hour live stream in December. And we're back at it again. This year, we're raising money for three special charities. Anxiety Gaming, Special Effect, and Rainbow Railroad. We're looking once again to top our goal. Your help, I know that we can do it. You can donate to the charity of your choice at distractionsmedia.com slash charity stream. As always, if you would like to watch us play games, have fun, and join our community, you can do so at twitch.tv slash distractions. Fun begins at noon Eastern, December 1st. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your generous support. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 90, The Sons of Griffith. The story of the Sons of Griffith ap Eurworth start and end with failure. In 1246, when David died, his legitimacy to the crown of Gwyneth died with him. In negotiations that were made between the English kings and Llewellyn ap Eurworth in the years before, of course, he was given uh, the right of primogenitor and in exchange he would be able to control where the descendants he went after that. Unfortunately for Wales, and specifically for Gwyneth, he didn't have any children before he passed away, so thus there was no heir, and without a rightful heir, the crown under Welsh law would normally be split with Owen and Llewellyn ap Griffith, as well as their younger siblings, sharing it. But... With the war ongoing, the two brothers were forced to find a peace without their uncle and without legitimacy in English law. The idea of primogenitor or the firstborn doesn't apply if you are the sons of bastards. And in the case of Griffith ap Eurworth, he was a bastard. So, of course, his legitimacy, even though he was the firstborn, evaporates. And so thus his sons shouldn't be in line for the throne. Uh, but instead they are because, of course, in kind of a weird way, they are under Welsh law, but not under English law. Yet it's the Welsh law that actually apparently holds in this case. Um, at the time, they themselves were held under the king's protection, in quotes, in Chester, likely as prisoners to deal with David should the war be prolonged. But, of course, David's death ended any need for that. Obviously, uh, Griffith had been used as a tool for the king effectively to keep David in line, to keep him on side, to force his uh, allegiance. And without Griffith, he now turned to his sons. And of course, David more or less ignored that because he didn't really care about Griffith in that way, I think. I think it was more of a political ploy that got his ire rather than actually 
being upset that his brother had been died because if he had cared that much, he wouldn't have put him in prison in the first place. In April of 1247, we don't seem to have a specific date, but that's as close as we can get, the Treaty of Woodstock was signed. It was a humiliating defeat for the princes of Gwyneth. They ended up losing the eastern half of Gwyneth, which covered all of the area east of the Conwy, which, of course, King John had controlled as the four cantrifts. On the western half of Gwyneth, including Anglesey, Clean Peninsula, and the areas uh, south of there, they divvied him up amongst the three sons that appeared to be the heirs. So thus, some went to uh, Llewellyn, some went to Owen, and some went to David. This portion, of course, that was given to him was actually given to Meredith Aprisart, who possibly represented the interests of David, who at that point was not of age. Um, the only reason why we think he may have served David is he also served as a pentalu or war leader for David, which, of course, would trigger that reason why he would be given that charge. Also, the fact that he was a cousin of the uh, of the princes, so he would have relations with them. And we talked about before how the war leaders typically are related. They're typically kept as war leaders to kind of keep them out of trouble, in effect. But on this occasion, he was effectively the ward for his cousin, uh, who at the time was in his minority. Um, Henry was not done, though. Along with splitting their inheritance along Welsh lines, he also forced them to do homage to him in order to keep their small rule intact, including paying a royal fee. What this meant was, in practice, is that the two had to present soldiers when called upon to fight for the English. This meant that a thousand foot soldiers and 24 knights were to be on call for the king in Wales, and another 500 foot soldiers to deal with issues in the march which now included parts of Gwyneth, of course. So, in other words, Welsh soldiers, Welsh troops, were now a part of the English army, enforcing English will in Wales, which I think you can't get much more blunt than that, if you think about it. As you can imagine, this must have rankled Owen and Llewellyn a great deal. It also put the king's own lands against them, as he now controlled areas right by Gwyneth, as well as, of course, their former marcher allies. They lost Chester to the king, as well as areas to the south to the king. So, combined with all of this novel extension of kingly power, Henry could now rule on the pleas of the area, and all of this is still controlled by native-born rulers. In other words, he was still the one you had to go to appeal to if you wanted to get justice. This, of course, undermines local rulers and allowed Henry to continue to spread the perception that the English king was the effective ruler of the British Isles, not just of England. That was a dangerous precedent for Welsh independence. In effect, it means that in practice, the Welsh-born rulers were simply lords of the king rather than kings or princes on their own right. It was a tactic that would be used by Henry's heir, Edward, in later years to conquer Wales and Scotland on the backs that he was the true and rightful ruler of the land, not the native-born princes or kings. For 200 years, the Normans and their descendants had been eroding Welsh control in ways that left little doubt where we were headed. It also meant that there was little doubt where the final outcome would be. On top of all this, Henry would be setting up a system whereby 
Welsh rulers had to swear fealty and make what amounted to rental payments for the land they held. The royal courts started to spread across Wales, and with them came sheriffs and shires and all of these anglicized ways of doing things, including anglicizing Welsh law, which was interpreted by them in their own way, and they were the ones who you were responsible to, not the local Welsh lord or the local Welsh prince or king. In that way, of course, that undermines the Welsh rule as well. It shows really who's in charge, and it's not the Welsh rulers. Cardigan and Camarthen, for example, received these courts even though they were in a part of independent kingdoms, uh, as did, all, of course, all of the march. By 1248, the royal courts were the only places where cases were heard, and the only disputes left was whether it was heard in Welsh or English law. So in a lot of ways, it's very similar to what happened in Canada, where you have this combination of the French who were defeated in the Seven Years' War, left in this new France, which would be called Quebec at that point, and the English who controlled the area, the British, I guess I should say, because they then amalgamated both the French and the English in ways of having common law and Napoleonic law would actually coincide in a very strange fashion in, in that law. And it carries on even today and to some extent. So you have that kind of system going forward even at this point in Wales. And you can imagine how difficult that is if you have English interpretation of Welsh law where they don't know the precedents, don't understand the case law, don't necessarily understand, you know, the way the Welsh looked at right and wrong and who and how things were done. Of course, Welsh rule of law typically fell to the eldest family member and, of course, or at least the most considered elder uh, amongst the family would then determine what was the rule of law for that family. And, of course, if you take that forward, of course, the king or the prince or the lord of the region would have that control. Well, that doesn't exist under the new English system that came into place by the mid-13th century. This all changes in dramatic ways from here on out. We have an expansion of the royal courts and a showing that, effectively, there is no independence in Wales anymore. And that's one of the biggest ways they begin this process is through enforcing law in English courts using English and Welsh law and, of course, intermingling the two. With the king's maneuvers, Owen and Llewellyn put aside typical sibling enmity that was so common in Wales and often led to so much bloodshed in these cases, at least at first. For many years after this, they would have peace, but it wouldn't last. Yet, even with all of this, there are contentions from the historian David Carpenter that while the king was expanding his power in the marches of Wales, in general, he was not as committed as he could have been to seeking a solution for Wales. There was no legitimate reason in 1247 for Henry III to keep Gwyneth, his constant thorn, as a kingdom. With the death of his nephew, there's no legitimate king or prince that could be put in that place. No more relation that really should be there. As we just discussed, under English law, Griffith has and his descendants have no access to being the rightful king. And so, of course, you question why he would have done that. Simply put, it's something of a combination of things, really. 
And it's an interesting one. But at the same time, why he didn't either kill them off or exile the sons and left nobody legitimately able to claim the crown, it would have then, of course, left no one to oppose the English rule. Because, of course, Powys, or at least Upper Powys, was in the hands of the English pretty much the whole time through their interrelations with the Powys leadership. Lower Powys, not so much. They had been allies to uh, Griffith and David and and Llewellyn before them, so they would probably remain that way. But at the same time, Powys is a very much a divided kingdom, a very minority kingdom, as is much of the rest of the Welsh independent kingdoms. They are shadows of themselves compared to what they used to be. So if you took Gwyneth out, you take out the last real seat of power in Wales, and you eliminate the ability to defend themselves. So it is questionable why they didn't do it then. Why did they wait 40 years for this to come a second time around? I don't know. Second um, reason that he might have left it this way is to keep people loyal because the feeling is is that should he have done this, um, it may have created problems with the Welsh, uh, divisions with the Welsh, and rebellions with the Welsh, even the loyal ones. And it might cause problems with the marcher lords who may not have looked kindly to this. Because, of course, Gwyneth still has allies within some of the marcher lordships, even at this point. So there's still linkages through family and through marriage that matter to these groups. And, of course, all of that's important. So maybe that was part of it. And finally, he may have just had more pressing concerns with the English possessions in France that meant he had different priorities. Uh, one is left to wonder that if that was the basis for all future problems, both he and his son and their heirs would have, right up to that time, been able to put something off that may have stopped what comes later, where a descendant of both English and Welsh blood ends up overthrowing that family and sitting on the throne of what then is the combined force of England. And, of course, it, this would have obviously have ended any sort of independence, how sketchy it is, in Wales. So there's a lot of what-if scenarios that will keep fiction writers busy for days and years and months, but for us don't really matter because that's not what happened. At this point, Llewellyn is either 24 or 22, depending on the sources. Numbers and years and everything else are very sketchy in the way this works. We'll talk a little bit of how this affects Llewellyn's family even. And so you have a long time to sort of confusing numbering systems going on. So, so we're not entirely sure, uh, based on genealogies and dating and source material that we have, exactly when these guys were born and how old they were when they were born. We have obviously specific dates and times when they died, not so much when they were born. And in 1247, of course, Llewellyn would have not been an adult for very long and certainly would not have an overwhelming amount of experience in politics or warfare, for that matter. And frustratingly, unfortunately, as I said earlier, we have little about his early life, nor the lives of his brothers. In fact, we have even less on most of their lives. And sources do not even know in which order they belong, which creates a whole new level of frustration. Uh, divisions in Gwynedd during this period are slightly clearer, however. David, the younger brother 
closer to the age of majority, possibly the one who still wanted possessions in Wales, received the commote of Kim Midiern, a small piece of land on the tip of the Llyn Peninsula. Um, if you know the geography, kind of from the Hell's Mouth to about Bardsley Island is kind of where it went. Uh, so it's a very small area compared to even the rest of Gwyneth, which was basically everything west of the Conwy River in that area. Um, and historians feel that there's evidence that shows that Owen, on the other hand, received the comeouts on the western half of Gwyneth, and Llewellyn generally received the eastern half from Anglesey to the west side of the Conwy down to Pendlin. Uh, as mentioned before, the four cantrips of the Perfilad uh, remained in the hands of the king, taking up the other half of what was Gwyneth's existing lands. Of course, one immediately wonders about the fourth brother that we hear about, Rodri, a brother who is mentioned in some sources as being the third brother in the order, but seems to have inherited nothing in this negotiation, which makes me suspect that really he's likely the last-born brother, and he was too young to have a say in the distribution. He was probably, whereas David is within... You know, he's probably around the age of 10 at this stage. Rodri's probably even younger than that, and that might explain it. Although the sources all seem to claim that he was born in the mid-1230s, which would definitely not put him that age. So this is where it's all very confusing. So we really don't know. David would be in charge of his commote after 1252 when he came of age. On July 11th, 1252, in front of his mother and the Bishop of Bangor, he became the lord of his commote in full. The future Prince of Wales was quickly caught up in events that were likely to have been created by his older brothers, because it's pretty unlikely that he would have been behind everything based on his power, his amount of land he had, the force he could call on to actually do anything. You've got to imagine it was pretty tiny at this stage. Owen, on the other hand, the older brother, Owen the Red, as he's sometimes called, remained a foggy figure compared to his brothers. Unfortunately, no less than his sisters, who are just as foggy, uh, Gluadis and Margaret. Unfortunately, most of what we do know about them comes from the nefarious death of Margaret's sons by their ward, uh, suspiciously, who was rather obviously given lands by the king after their death. This all happens about the time that Llewellyn is killed in the middle of the war that's going on between Edward and Llewellyn. So there is a lot of suspicions it's all interrelated, and that would make sense. Uh, one thing we don't hear at this point, which is problematic, is who these men married. Uh, there's no mentions of marriage to Llewellyn, at least there would not be until the 1270s, which makes one wonder what happened in the intervening 20 years. This is a young man who has power. He has intelligence, obviously. He's, you know, a war leader. He's successful. He's, you know, looking to make political alliances, one would think, yet somehow does not either father children, because we hear of no bastards, and doesn't seem to have any sort of other marriage claims that we know of. That doesn't mean he couldn't be, but in likelihood, it almost seems like he's just too busy to father children, and that it only really eventually came about because of political duty and necessity to create an heir, which is a little interesting, and, and one could question it in a number of different ways, but it's not something we can really know for sure, so I'm not going to delve into it, but certainly keep that in the back of your mind, that there was an awful long time. I mean, he lived till his 40s before he even thought about having an heir. So 
that is something to keep in mind. At some point during the years of peace between the sons of Griffith, they must have realized that there could only be one leader in the family if they were to gain back their honor and prestige for their house. For eight years, they sat in that position of peace that Henry III had put in them in, unable to do much other than to stew about the situation. In effect, all parties were in positions of weakness, put there by Henry and kept there for the fear of the English. And now, English were busy. Henry had returned to France to deal with his holdings there and to eventually fight a war against Castile. Simon de Montfort, in 1253, in disgrace, returns to England after more or less making a mess in Castile, which created the whole problem, and starts to cause more trouble for Henry by allying himself with barons in England who are not happy with the king and wanting reform. The Earl of Leicester, which is Simon, uh, had married his sister, married Henry's sister, uh, Eleanor, in 1238, and the marriage had brought the two brother-in-laws together, at least at first harmoniously. But this changes shortly after the birth of Edward I. Um, there were claims made and written quotes from Henry saying that Simon had married into the family by having some premarital relations with Eleanor and that that accusation that he had gone out of his way to commit adultery or fornication, depending on how you want to call it, um, created the problem and forced Henry's hand because Henry then had to marry him to his sister because he didn't want to have the scandal running through because obviously they must have impregnated Eleanor. Um, all of this, of course, would then create a rift between the two. Now, the likelihood is that probably wasn't where the rift began. If it had begun that way in 1238 and 1240, 1250, you know, I mean, we're talking a long time between this happening and them talking about it. So the likelihood is, is this is just a precursor. The, you know, this kind of stuff went on all the time. So really, is it that shocking and is it that surprising that this would have happened you know the the i the accusation of course is that simon seduced eleanor which is what created this whole problem but the interesting part of all this is and what it matters to us is that by 1254 they were at odds with each other and simon was a thorn in henry's side simon would become a key ingredient in the wars with the welsh and against the king uh, which would carry the English monarchy to a point where they had to settle it with a marriage pact with Llewellyn and Simon uh, intermingling. Um, for now, at least, the problems of Henry were opportunities for others. All of this likely set the table for Llewellyn or possibly Owen, depending on which one had the first thought of, gee, the King of England's kind of busy. This would be a good time to take them out and take over and then be able to turn and deal with the English possessions that they have gotten control of of Gwyneth. So very quickly, somebody made some calculations and decided that the other brother really doesn't need to be in a seat of power anymore. And obviously by that point, they weren't getting along and weren't able to come to an agreement. So with the English king distracted and the monarchy divided this chance to settle the family problem once and for all was important and would happen in 1255. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. 
You can visit us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Uh, you can talk to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. And be sure to check us out at distractionsmedia.com where we do all of our other content and you can find all the details about our charity live stream, which once again is happening this year. It's such an important thing for us. Uh, every year we do this, trying to raise money for various charities across the world. Uh, this year, of course, Anxiety Gaming is back again. Um, we've now added Special Effect from the UK, uh, who raises money for dis helping disabled children through gaming. And finally, with Rainbow Railroad, which we feel very strongly. It's a great Canadian charity. Go check them out. See what you think. If you want to donate, you can do so at distractionsmedia.com forward slash charity stream. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Take care. Have a great day. We will talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.